0: Hi everyone, welcome to Such Good Feeling. Today's guest is an award-winning live sound engineer who is about to mix his 30th Brit Awards for television alongside working with everyone from Coldplay, Adele, Take That and Kylie on their filmed live shows. His exquisite skill of delivering the most exciting live sound on multi-artist shows, whilst all the time executing an almost zen-like modicum of cool, has resulted in 40 years of the biggest artists in the world trusting him. So please welcome mix engineer, pilot and connoisseur of fine biscuits, Toby (laughs) Allington. And we have biscuits.
1: We have biscuits. It wouldn't... Have been uh, wouldn't have been cricket to uh, to meet up with you without biscuits at the end of a little lunch.
0: No, yes, we have. We're at Toby's beautiful house in his wonderful studio, and uh, after the most exquisite, beautiful Spanish tapas lunch cooked by his fair hand, um, I should explain the biscuits thing is. It's just kind of I don't. It's, it's sort of been going on for a while, but basically, whenever there's a live show, um, people don't realise that to be able to create. The audio soundtrack for that live show. The, there is someone, usually Toby, out the back in what could be described as a very posh caravan with some equipment in it, um, manning the desk uh, and making it all sound lovely for the television, and ably aided by biscuits. Well,
1: indeed, biscuits are mandatory part of it. I
0: remember taking
1: Sally, my lovely wife, to the first um, her first live broadcast in the glamorous outside broadcast world somewhere either behind the stage or in the car park or whatever and we got to the end of it and she said i had no idea someone did what you did mm. just you know because it and and i i kind of get that I'm, I'm kind of pleased that no one thinks that there's an interpretation going on it's just it's just the sound mm. um but if they saw and understood the, the, the sweat, the tears, the heart palpitations, the, the love, the, um, and, and indeed the blood. Um, and it's basically where most shows, we're in the equivalent of a small control room, a small audio control room on wheels. Drive it up somewhere, plug it in, take somewhere between 32 and um, 500 and whatever we had on the something like the Diamond Jubilee and um, patch them in, sound check a band, do them, next, do them, next, store it. The wonderful world of computers, but we'll probably go over the history of mm. how we've got to such a compact set of tools that we use now. And the fact that I could do one of these crazy shows with three and a half hours live to air with 28 artists in, uh, in one truck, that uh, wouldn't really have been the case or the results wouldn't have been very nice. Um, 30 years ago.
0: Absolutely not. And I think that's a really important thing for, I mean, most people would know this, but when you have got a live show, there's there's kind of two or three things going on at the same time, but, but principally there's someone at the front of house who's mixing the show for the audience. And that's actually a very different mix than the one that would be going out for a television audience. Owing to the fact that the person at the front is balancing the sound for the room Whereas you are balancing the sound for the audience experience at home. Exactly. It's, a, it's, the, same,
1: it's the same game, but very different parameters. Um, you know, aside from the fact that they're mixing through a, a 15 kilowatt bunch of wonderful boxes up in the air. And we're aiming for probably you know, an average of a two inch driver on the side, a stereo at least now these days, on the side of a TV. Um, but also the keys are different. The, the emotional keys are different. The feeling of being at a live venue, whether you're up in the gods or down in the stalls or in the mosh pit in front of the stage or whatever, the, what you need the audio to do to an audience. What you need the mix to enable an audience to do is react in, in a way that you're you're stri- striving for the same reaction in a slightly more detached audience in the, in the comfort of their own home, um, with the telly with two little four inch boxes either side of it, or whatever their sound system is. Um, so it's it 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 is the same game though. We're mixing music, we're producing an output, an audience is listening. Um, their audience may be up to you know in a a, a stadium, maybe up to ninety thousand. Our audience on a big international TV maybe up to half a billion, Um, but we're doing the same game. And then side of stage, as you say, it's the monitor guy who's mixing the show for the artists, not for their enjoyment, but to allow them to hear what they need to hear to be the fabulous artists that they are. So we're all doing our own thing, very similar things, with the same originating sources from the stage. So a big complex band, Call it eighty channels. I've got eighty. I've got those eighty channels from a splitter beside the stage. Front of house, we've got those eighty channels. Monitors, have got those eighty channels, and we're all doing our own thing
0: with them. Yeah, and that's pretty much the really well explained about how those worlds d- d- differ. Uh, so this is, as I say, we're talking to you leading up to your thirtieth Brits. Um, <laughs> what do you remember about your first Brits? Um.
1: Well, I was quite new to uh, live music capture and mixing. Um, I'd done a couple of shows live out from a truck for TV. I'd recorded a couple of things. So I was working with the, you know, back then I was working with the artists, say, on their album. And the producer or the, the manager would say, uh, you know, do you know, uh, do you know how to record a live show? Because they're at the Apollo on, on Thursday. I said uh, yeah sure yeah no problem at all there. so I would rapidly phone around some mates I was you know very well connected industry um Steve and I were talking earlier about the the way we used to have these very socially interactive places called studios where lots of people would get together and talk and we'd see each other on the back of their last gig and on the front of their new gig and talking about techniques and ways of doing things and so I knew quite a few people who would, had been involved in live music recording in a, in a mobile truck of some description, and they were all pretty funny old things back in those days, all analog, obviously. And um, so I said, yeah, of course, you know, I can do this. And along came the Brits. And I do not we weren't live to air, so it actually wasn't as terrifying as some of the things I'd done. I remember doing Killing Joke live from NOS in Hilversum. Uh, that was my first live to air um and we were just joining in part of the program and in dutch they announced the band and um geordie and that lot started playing and i'm like shit they're off (laughs) and um fingers flying on this funny old neve desk they had at hilversum um but those few things I'd, i'd i'd really got the bug of this genre of capturing a live performance on a stage and delivering it to a wider audience by then so I wasn't more terrified or less terrified which I guess is the subtext to the the question I was I was delighted and queryless and like how can we make this easier i.e. how can we give ourselves ourselves more time to make a better result what toys can we introduce into this chain to make a better sound, even though we're in a truck in a howling gale out the back in the car park connected by, back in those days, old copper multi-cores, which nowadays is a single fiber optic cable. Um, and you know, most importantly, what can we do artistically in the time allotted to fulfill the time and motion requirements of making it sound gorgeous? Mm. So there was the puzzle that was year one. And so we added and we changed and we added and we changed. And I, it, you know, I guess people might say you must be a bit bored of doing that show after 30 years and it's like, no, in the same way that a, a really good session musician doesn't get bored of doing a West End show for six months, six nights a week and two matinees, uh, they, they love it. It's what they do. They meet their friends, they get on. And so it's not, and it, neither is it the same show. Year after year, obviously not artistically, but um, technically uh, i'm I'm guilty of always trying to make things that little more complicated to get the best we can out of that time and emotion study of the show going on mm-hmm. and the show must go on the safety nets and checklists are all the huge part of this a separate subject that I could talk about for hours and um, I won't you'll be pleased to know but uh you know we all have our roles to play very defined roles on the team. Everyone has their responsibilities. It's not a ramshackle Well, let's pull this cable from here to there and see what happens. Everyone at the start of it has a briefing and they all know which slots they're in this year and what part of the show, my technical, they'll be looking after. And, um, yeah, when it goes like clockwork, it's a, it's a dream. Um, and when it doesn't, we have the safety nets.
0: And actually, I know you said you don't want to bore people with things like you know lists and stuff, but I do think it's actually important, and this comes up on this podcast a lot, um, for anyone that does any of these jobs, um, it is actually quite a lot about preparation, and it is about lists, and it is about fail-safes, and it's about being prepared for absolutely every eventuality, and then when the one that you're not prepared for comes along, you're prepared for that as well.
1: mm very much so. I think it's, I, I think I once described it in a bit of an exaggeration that it's ninety nine percent preparation and one percent hanging onto the faders for dear life. Yeah. On the on the show, um, and but it's it's not. It, back in two thousand and four, which is nearly ten years after my first Brits, um, I learned to fly little tin cans to little planes for fun. And there is so much from aviation that I brought mm. to the exacting world of broadcast. Yeah. Um, because it,
0: it,
1: ch- preparation, checklists, uh, how, you know, if a fault appears, how are you going to solve it? Do you need to solve it? Um, we have these, these acronyms like decide and so on, which we use in the air when something's going kind of bit fritz on the, uh, on the flight and resolve it. You do because the alternatives on the flight. Are probably slightly more dramatic yeah. than the alternatives. When you're uh, you take the show off and show a documentary about olive growing in Cyprus, um, but to that I've never lost a single show in 40 years. Uh, we've never been off air. We've never lost a band. Um, I'm proud of that. We've never we've never lost a team member. Um, but the the show must go on is something that takes me really back to my Olympic days under Keith Grant. And we had these big orchestral sessions coming through and uh, a very fast studio turnarounds, but most importantly, we had clients paying lots of money to come up and either, you know, it was their orchestral session or it was their band, or it was the, we had deadlines. We were doing film scores that uh, as ever the music for a movie is about the last thing to happen. And whilst we're working as hard as we can on finishing off the mix for Reels 11 and 12 of the movie, they'll be down at the dubbing theater working on Reel 9. And they're catching up with us quite fast. There's a lot of money involved there. Uh, There's a lot of risk. And it just had to happen. I remember Keith doing the most extraordinary things with channels and patch bays and microphones and, and never bluffing it, but just finding a solution. The show has to go on. We have to complete this. We have to be done. And it has to be there and i in my old triumph spitfire 1500 driving down to pinewood with a couple of reels of 35mm mag in the boot of the last two reels of the music for for the movie um yeah we, we just got there that that and that mentality has never left me that that we we work to deadlines and it's something i love it's something that To drive me a little bit potty in my old rock and roll days of working in the studio, that we thought we'd finished the album only to discover that we hadn't. (laughs) And it's like a a kind of, in terms of telly, that's like a a nightmare that you thought you'd finished the show and gone off air only to find that there's another three parts still to do or you're going to broadcast part two again live. So, uh, yeah, ticking the boxes, preparation, um, and having fun. The same Keith Grant said to me, if
0: it ain't fun, don't do it. Absolutely agree with that. And interestingly, you know, you said there that, you know, live sound was not the first thing you did and you worked in studios. I mean, do you remember the very first studio of any semblance that you walked into? Maid of Age nineteen. So okay. So then just talk us through that. How do you get from not being doing not doing it to walking into Maid of So
1: I uh, had a very musical upbringing. I learned violin and piano from the age of four. Uh, I still play the piano for fun. I led the Gloss Youth Orchestra as my only claim to fame on the fiddle, and I haven't touched it since I was 19. So, uh, yeah, I was going to do something with music. I was going to go and do a music degree. Um, I might have been involving performance, and then... The last few, last couple of years at school, I got involved with the local radio station, helping out mainly in the newsroom, like kids do. You know, we need a, we need a lackey, Um, and I just got fascinated with the whole technical side of broadcast, and um, you know, this this sort of uh, don't blow the transmitter up kind of approach to to a a local radio station. and uh, why things worked the way they did in cue lists and record-keeping for royalties and uh, just every aspect of it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. But also you know it was live DJs and live this and live guests and live interviews. Um, so I got quite bewitched with that, And at the same time as I'd written off my normal applications for university for music, I applied to the BBC for their studio manager. Course. And I went um in, you know, in in the mean it wasn't that I had no idea of what anything did. I got quite involved in the technical side of of quarter inch tape machines and I'd go and record bands on little eight channel mixers and to to probably to cassette for all I know. Um but yeah, I applied to the BBC. I went for an interview in Bristol for for the, uh, train, the studio manager training course. They call it studio manager, but it's actually a sound engineer uh, in radio. I don't know why they call them studio managers. Um, and uh, totally bizarrely, I managed to get in um, and went on this incredible training course at Evesham um, where they taught us a lot everything from transmitters through how limiters and compressors worked and uh, the basics of of sound, and then went back and started applying this. um, Well, uh, some of which involved trips up to Maid Vale to to, uh, trail um, wonderful engineers like Ted DeBono Bono um, and uh, see how that side of music was working. I kind of then realized that there was quite a large degree of um, Dead Man's Shoes about the BBC that I really wasn't going to be able to work in music, in light music, for quite a long time, which was the one area that fascinated me. And uh, so there I was doing radio drama and news, which was... Not really what I thought I'd signed up for. And I, anyway, they spotted that I got, I'd lost interest and fired me. So I then started applying to lots of studios around town. And someone had said, you know, if you're going to apply to any studio, apply to Olympic. And Keith, after interviewing me three times, uh, as he said, I just, I wasn't sure about you. Um, the third time he said, right, come join us at Olympic. And I was there for six, seven years under Keith until virgin bought it and then i went freelance that's the potted history of so the first studio studio stu- proper studio was made it was available. made available
0: and then yeah. into olympic so yeah. and i mean that was a probably a p- particularly golden period of olympic i mean yeah for olympic actually as a studio it doesn't exist anymore the buildings there and um and i was lucky enough to work there for a bit it's in barnes it was it was the most incredible studio with incredible lineage to, to it as well and a great place to learn and a great place to work um as far as from starting working there i would imagine it was probably not long before you started to see for want of a better word artists and pop stars around
1: yes i mean they were just they were just part of the fabric um and we would do uh you know studio one uh we basically had three studios there in in my time, Studio One was the big orchestral room, big live room. Studio Two, which was more a rock and roll room, with a slightly more rock and roll console setup, and Studio Three, which was the the mix room, but still had a little live area. And um, yeah, we were doing big movie scores with big named composers and big named conductors and big named soloists. And we were doing fantastic rock and roll sessions, either overnight in Studio One when the orchestras went there, or in Studio Two. Um, I mean, the walls between Studio Two and Studio One just got thicker and thicker over you know, they didn't change while I was there, but this thing was built like a, you know, a brick outhouse. Um, so you could actually do a rock and roll session in Studio Two whilst there was an orchestra, orchestral session going on in one. And yeah, we were just surrounded by. Um, people doing, you know, these wonderful people doing what they did, and we were doing what they did, trying to play catch up to make sure that what they did got to where someone else wanted it to get to, sounding like what someone else wanted it to sound like. Yeah. It's kind of you know this kind of uh, tic tac toe of of the artist comes in, and and two weeks later someone leaves with a a ten inch roll of, of half inch tape in
0: their under their arm. Um, yeah. And it and it it was tape as well, which is kind of a good good thing to remember. And also, I I have a a theory, and I again I spoke to a couple of people about this. That certainly then, you know, it didn't really matter the level or the size of the pop star or the artist. Sort of when people had walked through the front door, it was quite a leveling. It's like people going to work in a you know any any office. There's a slight hierarchy, but ultimately you're all there to do one job mm. so it isn't there's there, there are going to be elements I'm sure you had elements where someone who you were a huge fan of walked in and there's a bit of oh my god that's that so-and-so but actually it's a great level of being in a recording studio then mm. because everybody's there just to do that job
1: yes and it's a question I'm often asked it's like oh my god you know you met such and such and it's like well yeah and it's not I'm not arrogant about it I'm not dismissive of it i admire everything about their endeavors it's an honor to meet them i mean i met the queen after the diamond jubilee and it was a fantastic honor tingling honor to meet her but it's like they're people and i think as you said at the start of this 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 bit it's like you you're surrounded by pop stars and, yeah. and and classical stars and you know the pavarottis of this world from kind of day one of starting work in the studio and I think I just I just took that on board and said well the, these people want me to want us to deliver something for them so we're working alongside each other it's not remotely dismissive of how awesome it it, it is to 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 meet luciano or to work with george fenton or to you know but like you say, it's it's a it's kind of a bit of a leveller. We all walk into the room and we go right. We we have to create the most wonderful thing mm-hmm. here, and um, it's kind of we leave everything behind at the door. And our endeavours here are based on the premise that this is the most important thing in the world for the next three hours, twelve hours, whatever, um, and. You know, if someone wants to pull rank because they're more important, well, of course they can. If someone wants to pull rank because they're paying, well, of course they can. If someone wants to pull rank because they're right, that's absolutely fine. And anything else is a discussion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we also, like we spoke earlier, and I think this is this is true and very much true of Olympic is that, uh, and anyone working in any studios growing up, is that you you sort of are able to take little bits away from everyone that you work with. And I think we were talking before, you were saying, you know, there's a, you almost name them as saying, you know, well, this is, this is where I got this from. This is where I got them. from. I mean, I imagine forgetting the, the kind of artists for a moment, the engineers and the producers that went through there, I mean, I just imagine there's a kind of there's almost like a smorgasbord of tiny little things that you just got from each one of them.
1: Yes. Yeah. I I wasn't born with any of this knowledge of how to record and mix music. Yeah. You know, it's all it's all been learned. I haven't appropriated anyone's style. Uh, I haven't deliberately plagiarized anyone's style, but I have learned a lot. As to how to do things, and I use some of those tools that I've learned from people who've inadvertently or or deliberately taught me, and they are connected or or, or separated by pieces of tissue, plagiarizing, appropriating, and
0: learning, which they would have learned from someone else in the first place.
1: Absolutely, so they it's weren't, a, it's they a, weren't a sort born of with it.
0: universal. You know it's the old what is it the the sort of tennis ball dog tennis ball sharing scheme? yeah, it's kind of like that,
1: yeah, just yeah.
0: with sound
1: exactly. you know we're all we're all kicking the bucket downstream to those who are ready to catch it and learn from it. yeah, um, and one of the wonderful things about Olympic was that we had these these very talented visiting engineers. Some very demanding artists because it was one of, at the time. It was one of the top three studios in London, and um, it was there to learn from if you wanted to. If your eyes were open and you just listened to that snare drum come to life, you listened to how those tom toms became larger than life, but didn't obliterate the drum kit. You listened to how that bass had that much harmonic on it without being, having a nasty metallic. Slap or fret noise on it. Uh, you want to learn how to make strings into three times the size of the number of players you've got with no effort whatsoever and no bloody plugins or anything. You watch Keith Grant work with a set of glass screens around a string section um, and do it all with all with reflections and 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 gentle plate reverbs. So everything was there for the taking, and I, I, I there's a, I'm I must have missed so many tricks along the way, but some of them I, I hold dear to this day. And whenever I see some of the culprits who taught me something, I always say, you know, I, I, every time I grab hold of that type of rock and roll snare, a sort of post-punk snare, I think of you and go for exactly where we, you used to end up. And I, that's this kind of, you know, it, it's a soundscape that is, uh, it's borrowed you can't just start it all from scratch every time you've got to use your toolkit you've got to use the what you've got and what you've put in your quiver along the way um, and that doesn't mean to say you use formulas that don't belong to a situation. it means you're prepared for a situation and you can pull the right tool out of the bag to fix the leak
0: and i think also i mean I mentioned at the beginning about your sort of effortlessly calm and cool exterior when many people especially in these very very high profile shows you know there's a lot of drama around there's lots of egos there's lots of it's a very important thing that's happening and i wondered like having started out on quite high pressure orchestral sessions where it's a lot of players it's a lot of mics if you know you're responsible partly for making sure that you know there's the mics don't go down or there's not a noise on them or something like that and you've got A lot of money being spent in a very short amount of time. If that's your starting point, that seems to feel to me that you really, well, if you can cope with that, you can cope with anything.
1: Yes. I mean, it's sort of, um, I I rather callously refer to stress, misnamed stress, as it is a lot of the time, the stress of, of basically being someone being out of their depth. And I don't mean that in a nasty way because I do understand what stress is and I've had my own clinical stress times of life. But I think it's easy to get stressed.
0: Professional stress is basically what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, And maybe you should take a step back. And I think the eyes wide open that you are looking at every, you know, go back to the orchestral sessions. You're looking at every single thing in the room. You're looking at every single musician. Let's say there's only 60 of them. You're looking for someone trying to catch your eye. You're looking for someone moving their headphones off their head. You're looking for a mic drooping over a string section. You're looking at the client's reaction. You're looking at 60 odd meters moving, going to multitrack. You're looking at the multitrack, even though we've got a tape up, you're looking at the multitrack machine uh, or, or at worst, Tools, and um you're you're monitoring every aspect of everything that's going on. You're listening acutely because you're often looked to for the first point of reference of was that take okay. Um, you're looking at the desk for little failures. You're looking for channels that are, uh, you know you're listening for and looking for channels that maybe are, 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 have got a little click somewhere. Where did that click come from? Sixty-four channels. Where did that come from? Did you see it? Nope. Okay, where is it? Where is it? Where's he gone? Um, you, you know, and then without disrupting the session, you say to the Pro Tools operator on, on the time code ish, there was a click. I think it's on is, I think it's in the first or seconds. It was on the left-hand side, have a quick look on headphones. Would you, or just look on the waveform. I, I, I don't want to hear playback on the desk. And you know, you, so you work really fast. It's a it's a it's a great fun thing. It's like flying. Yeah. You're 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 monitoring everything. Your your scan, as we call it, in the plane where you you have this, especially an instrument flying. You have you look at this instrument, then that one, then this one, then that one, then this one, then that one, and it's it's trained. It's it's rigorously trained as to what order you examine and cross check and react. Mm-hmm. Um and. It's the same recording lots of people and being under a monetary constraint. You're doing what you can to recognize, mitigate, and negate risk and errors.
0: So, what was your first foray into the sort of live TV world? Was that as a tape op assistant, or Um,
1: so that was by the so I, I was very lucky. Keith Keith placed a bit of faith in me. Um, and made me a, a made me an engineer. Um, he allowed me the privilege of working on a few gigs, mm. a few sessions, and uh, you know, I, did, I would discover that in, in in each case, especially my big first big orchestral film score. Keith said, "I want you to do this one."
0: What? Right. What was that for?
1: It was a film called Echo Park, and I'm trying to remember the composer's name. And it was a you know. Fifty-piece orchestra hmm. um, in Studio One, and I discovered after the event that on every single session, Keith was Keith had plugged all the monitoring, the talkbacks uh, down to Studio Three, so he could listen to how the session was going oh. without being in the room to intimidate me. He was just keeping a finger on the pulse. That's very sweet. And um, and he came up to me after the final session, and he said, "I." I I wouldn't want you to find out any other way. And I want you to know in any case that I listened to every session that you drove in, in studio one on that film. And, uh, he said, you did, you did well, you did a really good job. Um, well, that was, that was, that's very Keith. That was how he managed things. Mm. He could have sat in the corner at the back of the studio and I would have been terrified and would have fucked things up. really Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> so, Um, and I, but I was already doing the odd bit of rock and roll. We were encouraged in downtime to bring our own artists in. I'd found a couple of bands. We tried things out with them. Um, I, you know, on the rock and roll side, it was, I was uh, assistant engineering for some great engineers, great artists. Um, so my first foray into a truck was when I was working with Chris Kimsey on Killing Joke. And Chris said, not, sorry, not a track on outside broadcast was when I was working with Chris Kimsey and Killing Joke. And um, Chris said, we're going to NOS in Holland to do this big Hilversum broadcast um, and Killing Joke. And they, they want me to bring you to engineer it. Like, okay. Uh, that was brilliant. That switched lots of lights on mm. I'm like okay live performance Ooh. and we'd done most of the Killing Joke sessions we did live in the studio we we set it all up with mm-hmm. lights and you know as few screens as we could apart from several around Geordie's guitar stack setup, up um, but most of it was out in the room um, and Jazz would always do you know uh, guide live guide vocals with it and we put the tracks down do th- two or three takes we'd mm-hmm. choose a take and that was it um, and then we do a few guitar overdubs and maybe a few key overdubs and jazz would do some vocals and then we'd mix it the following day. And mm-hmm. just, you know, a conveyor belt of, of, of efficiency, but they didn't want to ninny around putting the drums down and putting the bass down. No, they didn't want to they, be they, a well, band. Yeah. They wanted to be a band. Um, and so one thing led to another with all that. And, uh, when, um, when, Olympic sold to Virgin in 1987. I went freelance and I was doing kind of a, a, an Olympic mixture of things. I was doing film scores. I was doing TV ads. Yuck. Uh, I was doing some rock and roll. Um, but occasionally I'd get asked to do a live thing in a truck. And then that went, you know, that just got increasingly, you, you find that you end up doing what you love, right? Mm-hmm. Just like you. Mm -hmm. And um, so the more I loved it, the more I was asked to do it. And then um, I got asked to do The Brits in 94, and things didn't quite work out because there were some hurdles which we couldn't move, um, being polite. And uh, (laughs) 95 was my first full year on the show. Right. And that's when I could say things... Things really took off from there, because that's a very visible, head above the parapet. I'm mixing eight, nine live bands, and it's our flagship show. And back then we had, you know, 7 million TV audience every year, and the bands liked what they heard. And when they came back next year, they were less nervous. Next year, they're less nervous. And now as we get towards 30 years, I guess they're getting more nervous again. I don't know if it been through the, the No, the, the not, peak. not at all. Not <laughs> at
0: all. And actually, the thing that still fascinates me from what you said at the beginning and what you said now is that, from what I understand, your very, very first multi-artist television show was The Brits.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd, done, I'd done shows, I'd, I'd been on recordings where we rapidly moved from one artist to another. But um, nothing quite like the speed of the British Awards. That was so exhilarating. You know, it still is exhilarating. The, and I still get very nervous before a show. And some people say, well, why? And I because it's terrifying. <laughs> We're on air in uh, 30 seconds. Okay. you're know, like, okay, final checks. Everybody good? We have to speed on. Yeah, right. Okay. Comms check, comms check, comms check. Front of house, playback, da da da. And we're on air in ten. Okay, okay, okay. How's this song start? Hear it. Hear it in your head. Hit the ground running. And on air in five, four, three. (sighs) The Brit Wars 2022 is brought to you from and I without fail will think, why am I doing this? (laughs) Why? <laughs> Why? Why am I doing this to myself? I'm. I'm. I. I wanted to take things a little more easy these days, and, and oh Christ! And my palms are sweating, and my fingers are trembling, and then the first band starts, and three seconds later, the show's finished, and we're in the bar with a glass of pale in our hands. It's just. Uh. It's. It's like a sort of racehorse coming out of a closed gate. It's just like. Bang, you're off. Um, So, yeah, and I I have other people who say, well, that's a very good thing that you get so nervous about it because it would mean if you didn't, you you didn't care. Mm. And uh, whether whether that's factual or not, uh, if it's an indication that I care, then even that nervousness is an understatement about how much I care about that show.
0: Yeah.
1: I've I've loved it and nurtured it. Mm brought things to it taken things away from it refined it tweaked things learned from it i've 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 kicked it i've loved it i've hugged it i've hated it i've wrangled it to the point where i'm so proud of what we do on that show every year and the artists turn up with the trust and appreciation that this is a good sounding show and uh so yeah if i get nervous doing that well it's probably for a good reason.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's because you care, as, as you say. It's absolutely that. So what was the first one that you did that was live to air for the Brits? So we used to have this, uh, early days,
1: we had this absolutely horrific overnight post-production, and, uh, which meant they went out the following evening. The press obviously had leaked everything that was anything to do with the show. Um, but we still got very good audiences. And there's a funny psychology here as to whether the press was a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. And if you talk to people who are involved in the production side of the show in those day, in the non-live days, they would say that's why we got four to seven million people. And you talk to people now and they say, well, this is just so much more exciting, creates much longer buzz run and creates better social media. And so I, I don't know, I just mix the music. Um, but we used to finish the show and then either on site, wherever it was, Earl's court or, um, Ali Pali or whatever we'd, we'd, uh, uh, occasionally I would not, I, the truck would drive into town to the dubbing suite to, to, to the edit suite where they were editing the show overnight and, um, I'd mix the music in the truck outside and a bit like I was talking about, uh, kind of mixing film score. Chasing up behind the the the, the dub. Mm. Um we would we would send parts down, or I'd send music mixes up to my lovely Nick Berry dubbing mixer, sadly died. Um, and Nick would throw the music mixes into his dub. I'd review the part with him, that would go off to the uh the play out edit, and I'd go back down to the truck and mix the next part's music, one or two artists, bring that up to Nick, review the part. And we'd end up fried by about three o'clock the following afternoon. and mm-hmm. go to the pub and then the show would go out. But we had to do that because people knew it was a post-produced show. We couldn't just say, well, are we doing it as live? So what's mm-hmm. and all? And people would go, well, isn't that a bit shabby? They didn't fix that. And they recorded it last night. So we had to do this hideous 24-hour or, or 18-hour post-production. Um, I think we first went live probably oh guesswork uh i'm gonna say we've done it live for maybe 15 years
0: yeah that felt about right to me i think Mm. it's yeah when it kind of
1: when it changed wikipedia will tell you um and i was so relieved when they announced that bizarrely um some people would say what (laughs) no because then when when it's done it's done and everyone knows it's live, and
0: yeah. yeah, and actually, it's you know, mistakes can happen. Everyone's a human being; it's absolutely fine. Yeah. Nobody dies. Yeah. it's.
1: And I think for for the audience, it's a little more. It's a bit like watching a circus that has been post produced. You know, the part of the fun of the circus is watching it live and watching the trapeze artist live and mm-hmm. watching the you know the the tightrope walker live and watching the, the things going slightly awry Mm. deliberately or accidentally and so we're putting on this not quite squeaky clean but much tidied up show was to my mind much more enjoyable knowing that that happened 30 seconds ago at the o2 in london when you're watching it on telly yeah um and that 30 seconds is uh driven by the requirement to have what we affectionately call the fuck button. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fuck button is operated by a couple of lawyers because they're the only ones who can get insurance for operating the fuck button. And one lawyer passes a peep- pe- piece of paper to the other and with a timecode on it, and the other lawyer presses the button, and we go to go, not quite to Birdsong, um, but we go to Indistinct, and uh, then he releases the button, and the lawyer hands him another piece of paper with the timecode on it. So artists who think that they can rehearse compliant lyrics and then on the night, like many have done, uh, a lot of rap artists have done, um, then throw in non-compliant lyrics and they just end up being muted. Mm. That doesn't get anybody anywhere. No.
0: Well, it's frustrating for them and frustrating for the audience as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, they get very cross to find that the... um, that their their music number was basically going to be used for playing musical chairs um because it's just start stop start stop all the way but but, yeah we told you
0: yeah well it's i mean as you say it's a finely old machine and i think the interesting thing actually to note is the fact that when we say multi-artist show that doesn't mean to say that it's a bunch of artists that turn up and they all have the same setup i Mm. mean you can have a band a really cool kind of rock band playing one minute and then you can have the pet shop boys playing the next minute so it's not like there's even there's nothing you can every single setup that you have to deal with is probably completely different
1: it's completely discreet absolutely and uh it's um there are uh, various names along the way who deserve credit for the way things were designed and the way things work and um colin rowell and mick laginski um and from a staging point of view put together the concept of the uh the big roundabout at the back of the mm-hmm. O2 arena stage um where everything's on rolling risers and basically the in, our entire show is driven by you know one band rolls off next mm-hmm. band rolls on everything rolls around 15 yeah. degrees or 20 degrees whatever it is um and uh so there's a you know i i very rarely know who's won what by the end of the show because a band finishes and we're right uh we'll get from britannia row front of house from stage okay let's know when everybody's clear. Clear, clear 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 bang they're unplugging they're rolling around they're coming in. and we're setting up our next desk for the next artist from the snapshot that we stored in the rehearsal um that we might have tweaked uh after the dress rehearsal or we might have joined dress anyway i've got this computerized setup hit the button bring up the next band by the time we're there likely is likelihood is that brit row have rolled on the next band they've plugged them in and here we go line check kick snare hi-hat overhead overhead tom 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 pad left pad right bass gi bass mic bass buzz, bass this, guitar left, guitar right, sub guitar left, sub guitar right. And we literally go at a speed where it's, um, and there's someone, there's someone with a, with a, 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 kind of coin is, is what we usually ask them to do with the rest of the noise going on. You can hear all this racket of presentation in the background saying, and welcome to the stage, <laughs> is it right? Everybody ready for a line check, house to truck kick, house, monitor's truck, snare, house, monitor's truck, and it goes at that speed all the way through their setup, and we, we kind of uh, we get to the end of it. We do our final checks. We run any queries we need to, and then uh, the next thing is downbeat of the song. And you're off. Um, and we're off. And um, we've, had some, we've done some pretty impressive uh, kind of five-minute change-arounds of 60 to 70-channel bands, but we try and avoid those. Yeah. Um and we'll do the short turnarounds on a uh, a fully live 48 to even a vocal track. Mm. Now, and you know, but that the artistic isn't controlled by that necessity. We all know that we can do you know 60 tracks, 60 lines to 60 lines in 5 minutes.
0: Yeah we
1: just try not to tell production. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. And that's impressive. And I think the interesting thing about it is, is obviously over 30 years, there's been so many incredible moments and magical moments. And I think you can rehearse everything and you can rehearse the artist and the sound and the band and stuff. But what you won't know until the night is the reaction in the room. And we were, we were talking and I think one of the best examples of that was, was what is now sort of known as the Adele moment, which, which frankly, people have tried to sort of duplicate the, that sort of moment. And it, it was so unexpected because obviously at the time she was successful, but not, you know, what we know now. Mm. Um, I mean, what, obviously this ended up being, she was doing well, but it ended up being almost the thing that broke her when she sang uh, someone like you live just with the piano. I mean, uh, which was, Ended up kind of going out. It was the mix that you did at Your Life Mix. I mean, what do you remember about that? Well, it sounds
1: pretty simple, doesn't it? Piano, Both vocal. Piano, and vocal. But as uh, as most multi genre engineers will tell you, the hardest thing to mix is a jazz trio. Yeah. You know, you take you take away all that stuff. It's, 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 it's very exposed. Yeah, nowhere to, to hide. So nowhere to hide as a, as a technical process as an engineer. So a vocal and piano and, um, in the middle of a room with a massive PA largely pointing across the top of the
0: stage and going down her speed, her microphone.
1: Absolutely. So, um, the piano sounded gorgeous from the get go. Uh, it was a beautiful sound module on a on a on a yamaha uh, electric um electric grand and um there was just something about the way it started <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. it's kind of we knew the moment um the the moment her first two notes come out of that song Ah, yeah. It's like okay, and it just seemed everyone knew the audience knew because suddenly, for the first time in all the Brits that I'd done, it was silent. You couldn't hear a knife and fork or the rattle of jewellery or um, not a whisper, not a murmur, and none of that horrible TV whoop whoop as she hits the high note. Just
0: yeah, yeah,
1: they, yes, they didn't exactly. Do that because they've just transfixed. This was this was just this was this is magic. <laughs> it's really someone someone had waved a wand, and the audience just went. They they got it instantly. It was un, unmiss, unmistakably magic, and um, that start gave Adele the confidence to then just go right. And she produced this sublime, rock solid performance—a very stable performance from the point of view of her mic technique, her vocals, her emotion within them. Uh, it was, you know, it was a big emotional. You know, we know what she's like. It was a big emotional song for her to sing in that environment. And um, so I found I was like as we as we went through the bigger parts of the song in in terms of the, the the arrangement the the emotion of the song i could actually lift the audience a bit and it's silent it's just the o2 but you can feel people on the end of it mm. you knew that this wasn't if you like and and it was funny listening to it it was played over and over again on the radio it was number 1 on on the uh, in the charts for for weeks if not months and every time it came on i was like it's so funny. You can hear people, but you can't hear a single person, mm. even on the radio in the car. Mm. So there was, you know, it's those, it's those magic bits I, I absolutely adore. And I don't know how she did it. I don't know how any of them do it, to be honest. They, they are, they, they're just extraordinary people. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just sitting there, a hell of a show opener. And uh, I, was, I was like, just. <laughs> <laughs> hanging on to three faders
0: going holy wow but it's just gold i mean as you say world-class singer world-class musician yeah um and it's so interesting i hadn't really a, world,
1: a world-class stage team who hadn't rigged the mics so that they would fall down on the piano well strings. that's yeah, very helpful yeah very helpful good to good to have people who know what they're doing when it comes to a piano
0: i mean we're all about the crew we absolutely always there is always, no always. i in team no crew 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 the whole time yeah um i think uh yeah i think it's really interesting what you just said there as well which i hadn't even thought of is that some television shows had that been a pre-record may have chosen to add lots of whoops and cheers Mm -hmm. at inopportune moments to add excitement, (laughs) (laughs) but actually the excitement was in the fact that people were just completely spellbound. And that room is a hard room to get people to do that because as much as there is a fantastic public audience there who are brilliant and who are fans, there is also a large amount of the record industry there who, as you say, Possibly, might be sort of having mm-hmm. something to drink or something to eat or having a chat to each other, yeah. but to actually well, just, you know—pass pass the
1: uh, Polini Montrachet, would yes, you? Yes, <laughs> exactly.
0: But to actually make that entire room—it's a big room—to yeah. make that entire room be completely spellbound. Yeah. Um, and it's,
1: you know, it's—it cla- was. Uh, I'm, I I would put it down to just the way she started, and also. What a blinder, an opener. So, yeah. but I would also, without doing Adele any injustice, I would say also down to some very clever, just drop all the lighting right into this oh, cold yeah. spot on the center, yeah, it's yeah. like this. And so it was a production technical lighting audio, the way it was shot was beautiful. And the way the audience reacted and everything just came together to, to this kind of North Stone of wonderfulness.
0: And how interesting as well that there would have been uh, that year, any other year, there would have been much bigger, much way, way, way more expensive staging moments mm. that would have happened mm. that didn't have the resonance that that did. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes simple is better if you've got the, the, the right people to do the job. And as you say, the, uh, you know, the production team there, you know, directors, camera, I mean, it is, yeah, it was a beautiful moment, but I think to have a moment where you're in that, as you've said, you're, you're on the ride, you're sort of slightly petrified, but you know, you're on it and you can't get off mm. to have a moment where you can look up and go, wow. Yeah. Must be yeah. beautiful actually. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah,
1: that, and, that. and and yes, no, I love I you know but the decisions taken on light entertainment, if you like, post production of. Well, you know where she hits the high note, we we just want to hear them all going whoop, yeah, and let's get them all clapping on one and three and all the rest of it. Oh lordy,
0: <laughs> <laughs> nobody needs that. No, but what what's lovely though, and sort of to move on is what's really lovely is the fact that. Um, I'm not I, I don't know if it's necessarily because of this, but throughout you working with a lot of incredible artists on the Brits, it then formed a relationship with those artists to go on to other things of their own. Mm. So specifically, I know Adele that you worked with after that on her own shows.
1: I, I think the one I'm most proud of, um, partly because it was sort of, it kind of came out of the blue and no one really saw it. I, I think it's fair to say including her. Yeah, you know, she's great. She's great stage presence. There's a there's a little bit of fun yeah. she has with oh, yeah. the like oh god. Yeah. Um but the Albert Hall gig. Uh 2012, I think. Um and uh it was just Adele live at the Albert Hall. Um following on from nineteen, I think she just released 21, had she, or yes, just just releasing mm-hmm. 21 back then um and uh it was a great live show a fantastic band um nice small live orchestra going with it we managed to contain the stage enough to make all of that work and um she heard what i'd done on a few things as said her management and they said well look, would you mix the dvd and just cutting forward, once she turned the DVD, she said, "Well, could you also mix this CD?" And I said, "Well, it's, you know, it's a it's a very tiny remix. It's mm-hmm. just a few things we will reset, but yes, I'd love to." And um, because she was not unknown, you know, she'd done incredibly well with the with nineteen and starting to do very well with with the next album. Um, but because she wasn't who she was who she is now. Uh, I mixed that show and sent the mixes off to management Mm -hmm. and she listened to them and we had two notes to change things. I can't remember what they were now, but they were tiny, like two songs. Mm -hmm. Can you just change this and can you change that and that's all. Okay. That was it. Wind Forward and it's a cast of thousands. And wind a little bit further forward, and I'm no longer involved. Um, but that was the that became the highest selling solo female DVD of all time. Wow! In in a week and a bit, mm. leading up to Christmas. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: so I'm very proud of that. Yeah. And I still would put that DVD on and listen to it for sheer enjoyment. Mm. It's so musical. It's so clever. It's so lovely. It's so simple. It's so unassuming it's the albert hall it looks great it's uh it's beautiful lighting um and she just comes across as an original band leader artist
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's it still really really stands up mm-hmm. um interestingly just behind toby is a poster for aphrodite low folly which was the, I mean, it's not, you know, it wasn't even a concert, it was a film. Um, so, you know, obviously you and I worked together on a lot of uh, Kylie shows, film shows, but, and they're always a labor of love for, for, for both of us. Um, but I do remember that, those t- that time of us mixing, were well, you mixing Aphrodite as a, you know, in this 3D world and everything. I mean, it was pretty immersive, wasn't it? Yeah yeah
1: it was it was fabulous um I also remember um so this was with the with the fountains and everything, yeah. wasn't it? and I remember you coming back in to listen to some final mixes, having sent me some notes, and I'd taken so as these end fountains go off, <laughs> I'd taken my memories of the Bellagio in Vegas of those same fountains in the water out there, this kind of this wonderful way they start and And we're kind of the cameras tracking along. These things are going. And you look at me. What's that noise? And I said, "What noise?" He said, "No, it's on. It's on the track. What is that?" I said, "What these?" He said, "Yeah. What is that?" I said, it's, "It's a fountain steep. It's like it's the no, no, no. Okay." Right. So the, you know, there were a few moments like that. But we, but, that
0: we, but I think there was some that made it on. I'm sure <laughs> there were. So. There were some. No, not the fountains. There was some. Some oh, yeah, other. There was some other little sounds. It's Yeah, it mm. was. Um, it, it's 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 an <laughs> Until, interesting. Thing. I'll never
1: forget your face. I'm like, <laughs> what like, have you done to just my like, beautiful? No, track I love <laughs> that.
0: It's just like uh, no, <laughs> but. The funny thing about it is, is that it's uh, is in that process, and actually, you know, and when it goes into surround, obviously, it goes into a whole different world as well. But um, it was, it's almost like I remember when we first started working together. It's almost like meeting your nemesis because I'm, I'm normally the person that sort of has to terminate. Goes that too much? Do you think it's too much? And. For for someone else to sort of say to me, do you think that's too much? And for me to go, mm, it might be. That's like, okay, we're in a really good world. Yeah, here. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like... And, well,
1: and, and, that, and, the old adage, you never know yeah, how far well, you no, could go. Until you've gone there, yeah. There
0: you go. Yeah, yeah, but exciting. That's what I think is like you, you're, you know, we were talking about, you know, beginnings of shows, you know, and there's that moment where, you know, the, the very beginning of a show and I'm sort of, you know, I'm quite meticulous about, any show that I work on, and I love the I love the whole idea of the setup in the beginning. The first time thousands of people see the pop star that they are in love with and have loved for years and they've remembered and they've got them through all of these moments in their life. And they're there, they're right there, they're right in front of them. They've paid their money and they've got to the thing. That moment that they appear is so, so important. And to to make that translate into a small, well, not it doesn't have to be a small, but into a screen. When you're in the middle of the arena, you can feel it. To make that translate onto uh, a, a filmed version can sometimes be really tricky. But it's obviously intrinsically, whenever you mix, you are the audience and you want anyone watching at home to feel like they're in that
1: audience. That's my sole aim, really. You know, we've got a performance going on. As that's, that's a gimme. What the performance is, well, that's a gimme. Uh, you know, we can spend weeks recreating what it should have been, but that's not really my game or, or indeed yours, uh, it's a live performance. So there's our starting point. Now, my aim, my primary aim, once we've got rid of the technical, once we've made sure that we're reflecting that it's what, you know, in the case of Kylie or whoever, it's what you want, or it's what the artist wants, what the management wants, what everyone's happy with the performance aspect of it. We're then left with the thing that I, I kind of do slightly on my own, but I, I, you're, you're, you have a fascination with it, which I love. Mm. Because it's such, an, it's such a huge part to me of what I do is this twofold aim. One is I want people just for a while to believe that they're there when they're watching it. Just for a moment, they're actually... In, you know, they're on board, they're in J, And the other is that people watching it wish they'd been there. Mm. Now, if I can check one or both of those boxes with someone who likes music tally or likes the artist, then I've done my job. Mm. Because if that, you know, that if that seventh is a bit flat or that guitar is slightly out of time. It's not going to change. Christ, this is an exciting show. Hmm. It changes it for posterity and it maybe changes it for the guitarist. It's not going to ruin their career as long as they have <laughs> good the rest of the time. Um, but that feel, and that feel I could write books about because I, on a live mix and live show, my the right-hand fingers of my right hand very rarely leave the audience group you you know during a piece of music and say, well well, you know i can understand that during light entertainment where people are laughing and no it's not the it's not the itv laugh box if you like it's this is just chasing every bit of the right reaction and keeping it out of the way to allow clean music mix elements to come through where it's needed and being careful of bits that you've maybe tuned in post production so we don't hear a double voice uh to the raw emotion of feeling like you're in the crowd and um you know like we we've, we've done on Kylie and like i remember very clearly doing on Tina to a much greater extent uh and on one uh stadium concert where you can't actually hear the music for a few bars the audience has just gone bonkers they've pushed every compressor out of the way everything is usually bird it's all inverted and you're left with the audience at peak and you're left with that audience for as long as you can bear it to be believable and then you allow the music to come back into focus and it's a sort of it's a bit like film sound design stolen trick but you do that in the right place it's gold dust yeah <laughs> so it's such an important part
0: and actually i think it's we should talk about that briefly the fact that you know, the, the huge difference between mixing something you've recorded in the studio, and mixing something live, especially if, you know, anyway with a band because of the microphones, but actually with a multi band, if, you know, I know you've done work for, with Girls Aloud and you've worked with the Westlife, all of that noise, the PA, the audience, everything on stage is all coming down those microphones. Yeah. So you've got to learn to make it your friend or you'll lose. So is that it? So I was going to actually say what to you is the, are the main differences between re- uh, mixing something that's recorded in a studio and mixing a live recording. It's an emotional glue, all that racket.
1: Mm-hmm. The racket on the stage, the racket from the audience, the racket from the PA. Um, it's, it's, it's glue that instantly tells you where you are it gives you an instant gps hit on the fact that you're in that stadium um and i you know i very happily mixed studio albums i've just finished mixing a big cast album with a concept cast album with larry blank and we had a lot of fun and it's all studio based it's not rock and roll but it's um you know rhythm section and orchestra and choir and ensemble and soloists and so on, so it's kind of big. But it's not live. We don't have a reference. We create a reference. And there's something about live that you've got a reference. You've got this is your starting point. This is gonna be home. Hmm. This is where you sit. You can't sit anywhere else because it's happening. And equally, you know, there are engineers who who come from the studio world whose instant fear and loathing of all this racket is to try and get rid of it and they'll spend days cutting out and gating and you know noise limited noise reducing and denoising and clinically surgically digitally disarming every track of every ounce of other humanity well i don't use gates you know i i will if there's a buzz on the bass. Yeah. Every time he puts it down, it is quite quiet. Well, I'll just gate it. I don't. I don't. I don't use gates on the kit. What's the point in putting gates on the kit and then compressing the kit through a bus compressor and then adding uh, room reverbs? To it? It's like it's got its its built in reverb mm-hmm. machine. It all. It, a good drummer will have that kit tuned in such a sympathetic mode that it rings where he wants it to ring when he hits the snare or the toms or whatever. So. Take that as a unit, and um, plus you've got
0: at least a five or six second reverb coming well, out of the yes, audience anyway. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, um, you know, and you've got it coming back later. You know, depending on where you are, somewhere between a second and one and a half seconds later, as a as a nice clean signal off the back wall. Uh, so, no, I mean it, it, that's kind of my. When some you know, if I have a, a, a friend or a friend of a friend phones me up and says, Look, I've got this live thing to mix well, and it's got covered in like it can hear everything on everything else, I just say, go with it. You know, it's sort of just don't push the river, as my mum used to tell me. Uh, just go with it. And if you go with it, it's amazing how useful and lovely all that stuff becomes. Yeah. And if you take it out, you probably haven't got a very usable dry mix.
0: Mm.
1: It might be good, but it's not what you would want. And you put too much audience in, and it's not what you would want. Yeah. But if you treat the whole thing as Roge or wherever you want to be, um, it's, it's, it's all part of the game. It's all part of the emotion. Yeah. It's the glue.
0: And as you say, you're you're mixing it for a very different dynamic of the people that are in the room. I mean, I've said this to you before, and I know this isn't this is not this is one of your older mixes. But you know, uh, if anyone wants to check it out, I think even though the arrangement does a lot of the work, I think one of the finest examples of 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 what that what you've done when you did that um, was on the Take That Beautiful World Tour during Could It Be Magic, which is such a layered thing and actually when you see it live it has a natural dynamic to it which is in the room yeah. but actually when you're translating that for broadcast you can't start at like n- very very low level and get much much louder because <coughs> people would have to turn their TVs up and then by the end it's too much yeah. Yeah. so you need to have it you need to maintain the dynamics but without having the dynamics yeah
1: um yeah. and it's uh, what it's that's what I call a, a full staircase um and it, you need it in, in ballads, mm. uh, you need it in studio ballads, um, but you really need it in live ballads. And the whole thing is, 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 you know, take the staircase that goes all the way from the bottom to the top. That's really what you want. Yeah. That's what you want to be able to do. Yes. You can do that in live to cinema yeah. because, yes. you know, the audience is captive yeah. and you've got the dynamic range to do it and you can drop right down. Here and you can build it, and you get into the you know, and then you bet the first chorus, and by the end of it, you've got everything glowing, and you're at maximum cinema peak. Yeah, and the audience are just like they're at a live show. You can't do that for telly, so you take that same staircase and you just tilt it over, so that it's almost the same start point and end point, but you just have to create these little distractions for the ear that make you think things are getting louder. You take a reference point. And something will get louder than the reference point. Okay, now pick another reference point. And the reference point can be the vocal, it can be the piano, it's quite often the case in the in in a ballad. Uh it could be the acoustic guitar. But you keep that and let the thing grow around it. And as long as you can hear the reference point, you'll know this thing's got huge. Yeah. And you need a lot more work on on EQ, not dynamic EQ. I don't use dynamic EQ, but um, you know, but like starting point is like let's make some holes in things for other things. Let's have some clarity here so that we can keep the reference points, grow things around it, keep the reference point, grow yeah. things around it. And so you get this impression that you've been on the same voyage to this top of the staircase, but you're, you're maybe 3db louder than you were at the top of the sh- top of the song. Yeah. And I mean, you get that right, it's so rewarding, mm. and you play it to someone for the first time, and you see them kind of sit up taller and taller and taller in their seat as it goes through and you go yeah i've got I've got it. My dynamic range is 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 friendly it's 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 tame it's it's still emotional it's technically fine we're not breaking any rules um I'm not mushing everything into a compressor to try and make it sound loud mm-hmm. I'm actually mixing by just gently pushing and pulling things up a fake slope.
0: Yeah. That's a really good way of explaining it. I love that. Um, I just want to talk briefly about, um, you know, you have a huge love of travel. You love going to different countries. Mm. I'll go out on a limb here and I will say, you know, what is one of the most magical places you've been? And I would probably say, expect which Coldplay gig was it? Hmm.
1: Hmm, hmm,
0: hmm, Because they have a knack. (laughs)
1: They do have a they do have a knack. Um so I was uh, they very kindly asked me to go down to uh Buenos Aires, um a year ago now, uh to do the uh a live to cinema worldwide mm-hmm. from there. It was the, the launch of everyday life. Uh no audience. I mean there was a they did a little audience show but separate to this main broadcast. And this main broadcast went out on YouTube and we did something which doesn't, we don't normally do in the music business because no one wants to get out of bed. Yeah. (laughs) It's to do a show at sunrise because the album is kind of divided these two halves. And uh, so sunrise Uh, there, we were rehearsing a couple of days before up at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning, off to the hillside, Um and I we'd built a an audio tent with the lawo and all the all my usual bits and my crew out of uh, Netherlands and um, and and Belgium. Dirk Sakura, my technical lead, and uh it was incredible. It's still available on YouTube. As all I can say is, it's, it was incredible. It was magic. It was exactly the magic I hope that Chris had intended it to be and as we you know we hit that moment where the sun comes up over the horizon we've all done shows where the sun's going down and then the lights come on kind of thing but the sun came up and as the by design as the last notes of the first half of the album drifted away the first call for prayer started absolutely stunning just visually stunning, Paul Duddale directing, a um, couple of comedy moments on the rehearsal where this beautiful still thing is starting the day before we're there, five o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, 5.30, we hit go. And I've, I've got my, not audience mics, but Atmos mics wide open, picking up bird song and distant traffic and a city gradually creaking into life. Oh wow! <laughs> drones paul dugdale's drones take off right by my <laughs> atmos mics i'm like oh christ so i had my guys run these over to the other side of the hillside where we couldn't hear his drones it was very funny and all the you know unexpected and and brilliant comedy moments but just one of the most sublime shows i've done and then the similarly the evening show which is uh Oh, it was gorgeous, gorgeous experience. What, was
0: this last year or the year before? This
1: was the year before. Right. We have this game, don't we, with years at the moment. It's like. Oh, yeah, the, we were saying that 20 the and 20 pa- 21. Pa- pandemic years. 20 and 21. And, doesn't and, really and, you exist. know, I, I had some health things for a couple of years that, that, that came straight on the back of that. So I've got this sort of four year concertina that I'm constantly playing with going, well, was that 2019 or was that 2022 or 23 even? Yeah. And it's like, no, it can't have been 2023 because it's only just. February
0: 2024.
1: 20, yeah. You know. So, uh, yes, numbers.
0: And we absolutely don't have to get into the health things, but I wonder was there a point where you were sitting there thinking, I can't wait to get back and sit in my caravan in the car park of the O2? I, I think I
1: missed lots of things in life. And what I, the, the, the thing that I've done professionally for 40 years, yeah, I missed a lot,
0: hmm.
1: a huge amount, hmm. um, but I think I went through so much that if someone had taken that away and said, but you're, you're here, hmm. I go, okay, well, that's a shame, but I did a lot. Yeah. i I've worked with pretty much every artist in the world who I would really want to have worked with along the way. Um, my, my regret was, um, never working directly with Joe Cocker, um, never recorded him, but literally a week after he died, uh, Eagle Rock said, um, we've got this recording of Joe from Montreux, which could you mix it for us? Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't quite say I'll do that one for free, but. Um, I would
0: imagine there would be some distortion on that microphone.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I mean, he's just a, one of my favorite artists of, of all time because he just owned things. He just, that's, you know, it wasn't his song, but he just, for four minutes, he owns it and he makes it his. And that, just that commitment the ballsy commitment to, uh, to doing a song my way. Um, wow. I, 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 a lovely, lovely performer. So I'd, yeah, I didn't work with him live, but I worked with him after he passed. But you know, I've, worked,
0: I've done that's so much. I'm very lucky. to say that you've worked with every art. I mean, that's quite something. Not every art, uh, nearly. Nearly <laughs> every artist, obviously not Joe. And, and, Including Tina Turner, who including was teenage. and and who was was more than just an artist. I mean, that was sort of a much closer bond that you had with her. I would suggest.
1: Yes, um, I mean she you, she was she was generous of, of of spirit. So she would involve people who could help her get to where we all wanted to go. There wasn't. Um, it wasn't a case that she would talk to a minion who would send a minion to talk to me to see whether, you know, she'd just come and say, Hey, tell me. I want to do this. I want to do that. And, um, we, we had some fabulous times, her team, uh, and especially her fabulous musical director, Ollie Marlins and, uh, Roger Davis, her manager and all just fabulous people, you know, really. And, uh, you know, Roger, Tim Turner, Janet Jackson, Cher, Pink, you know, all the, Kind of camp diva, if you like, but wonderful, mm. wonderful, wonderful, um, superstar female singers, artists, and um, yes, to work with, with. I mean, I, I did a lot of stuff with Pink early days, just again, wonderful singer, great mm. support, fabulous band, da, 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 and da, da, da. as
0: successful as ever,
1: yes, still, yes. yeah. And solid. God, she's a solid person.
0: Even when she's spinning around um, on, above an arena, singing live.
1: Spinning down through the silks, um,
0: still singing. Live. Live. <laughs> I keep, live. I keep telling my kids, keep wanting to make sure in, that people know. In front of a PA. This is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. And, you know, I, I only say this because people will often say to me when they when Sally explains to them what I do, because I'm normally a bit kind of like, yeah, well, oh. I, I work in telly yeah and she'll say toby's being very coy you know he does this and the other and then they'll say oh god who's your favorite artist and it's like well i listened to you know i was listening to porgy and bess at the weekend i I listened to everything through everything i was listening to some old ramones in the car the other day yeah you know I i don't have a favorite artist so i presume they mean you know who's been the most enjoyable satisfying artist to work with mm. well that's sort of difficult as well because they all are because it's what i do mm. so they're all amazing some of them can be a bit of a pain in the bum but you're on the route to somewhere to getting what they want not what i want
0: and as you say you're just completely in awe of them because the idea of even being anywhere near a stage yeah you and i are both we we would like we would run for this i
1: i forgive them i forgive them everything so i i I was giving a talk in um in in india in delhi a big audio conference and uh it was um it was a big trade show Mm. well it's lighting stuff and camera gear and sound gear and it's just like you know like a a a big north North American or European trade show in Delhi. And, um, we got to, I was just, yeah, we got to the end of it. I'm giving it, I was, oh, they wanted me to hand out some prizes as well. So I said, well, why don't I, uh, kind of, you wanted me to do two talks. Why don't we roll the second one into the prize thing? And then, you know, so we did that and I said, so. You know, basically we we're about to give out some, some prizes here for, you know, what people have considered to be great tools or great benefits to what they do. And I said, I'm not, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm not admonishing anyone because we're all here because we're all here because this is what we do and these are the tools we use, but we have to remember why we're here. And that's that at some point, some Gal or guy was walking down the pavement, and a little line or two of a song came into their head, and they took it home. And they thought, you know, I love songs, and maybe they got their guitar out, or they got a friend to get their guitar out, and they put this little song together. And then they maybe, well, let's fast forward. They formed a band, and then the band did a few pub gigs, or and then the band was on a stage, and they got a manager, and the da 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 da, da and now. They use all this lighting kit and all this sound kit and all this production stuff, all these tools, and they're using us. And that's why we're here to look at what tools we can use to help those artists achieve their performance dreams. And that wouldn't happen had they not had that little yeah.
0: walking down the street. It's all about that. Um, that's amazing that, that thanks so much for that i mean i am so excited to walk back into your caravan with the biscuits <laughs> for the bricks this year which it's going to be great i'm I, delighted yeah, and, and we've had so many good times um we've always had fun and i've learned so much from you over the years and well ditto and, and we'll continue to do so and you know i'm can't wait, so I can't wait to see you and the crew out the back and wait for the five, four, three, two, one, knowing that you're bricking it. But actually, <laughs> as I still say to anybody else, cool as a cucumber. <laughs> so um, thanks for that. Thanks for lunch. That was gorgeous. Well, thank you. It's all about the prep and the note taking. Absolutely, um, ninety-nine and-
1: percent preparation and one percent putting it on a plate.
0: Yeah, and it, and yes, exactly. And uh, everyone enjoy the Brits and know that this man will be mixing it and has been doing for 30 years. Um, Toby, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Steve. A pleasure.